to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I am your host, Lauren Burke. And I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week, we are exploring the journals of two American writers who, though living and writing in close proximity to one another, give us very different insights into life in 19th century America. That's right. This week, we will be looking at Louisa May Alcott and Charlotte Fortin. Now, I don't think we need to introduce Louisa May Alcott to you all, but just in case, in the tiniest nutshell, she's the author of Little Women, mm-hmm. and she lived in Massachusetts, and she was born in 1832, and she died in 1888. I couldn't think of like a nice way of like saying that she lived in Massachusetts between 1832 and 1888 without it sounding like she lived longer than that or like she lived in other places you know just one of those Mm -hmm. lines which really just couldn't do it anyway so if your Alcott knowledge is rusty let me point you towards season two episodes eight nine ten eleven twelve and thirty season three episodes ten eleven and twelve and season four point three episode four I think we need to take a little Alcott break after this that's she quite might be a few our most Alcott covered episodes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Second only to Austin and Bronze. But someone we haven't talked about on the show before is Charlotte Fortin. So Lauren, do you want to give us like an introduction? Not a nutshell, like a big shell. We're going to get into it. <laughs> so, okay, here we go. Charlotte Fortin was an African-American anti-slavery activist, poet, diarist, and educator. So that's your nutshell, essentially. Um, But we've got more. She was born just five years after Louisa May Alcott in 1837 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But she ends up attending school in Salem, Massachusetts, which is only 23 miles from Concord. I think, you know, Alcott was born in Pennsylvania. Oh, was she? Yeah. We're going to have a lot of these moments, I think, today, actually. That's And that's why I couldn't say that she'd lived in Massachusetts her whole life. Because she hadn't, because she was born in Pennsylvania. Interesting. Okay. There's going to be some more. There's going to be so much more of this, actually, which is going to be great. Okay. So the Fortin family is somewhat famous. You've got Charlotte's grandfather, James Fortin. So he was also born free in Philly and served in the American Revolutionary War when he was just 14 years old. Following the war, he traveled back to England to oh become, gosh. I know, can you imagine? <laughs> he traveled to England to become an apprentice sailmaker. And then in 1790, he returned to Philadelphia to work for the sailmaker Robert Bridges. And eventually he takes over the business from Bridges and becomes like one of the wealthiest men in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania, certainly one of the richest black men in America at that time. From making sales. Mm-hmm. Well, from making sales. See, that's a good, like, hashtag, making, making sales. Making sales and <laughs> making sales. <laughs> I'm so funny. Oh. I really, really tickled myself with that one. You really did. <laughs> so then James marries a woman named Charlotte which can be confusing when you're doing research on the Mm -hmm. Fortin family, right? So, (laughs) FYI. And then the pair have nine children, including a girl named Charlotta. Not our Charlotte. Who isn't Charlotte? No. Different different one. Do they have a boy called, like, Charlie? So, all of the children were well-educated, and some of them follow in James's footsteps into the sale-making business. And... All of them also are staunch abolitionists. A lot of the Fortin fortune goes towards purchasing the freedom of enslaved people. Um, They fund an abolitionist newspaper called The Liberator, Mm. in addition to, you know, putting on various anti-slavery like events and hosting speakers. Uh, Charlotte grew up in the presence of a lot of, you know, great activists and writers. And she even met Harriet Martineau, who knew Charlotte Bronte. So... You know, I love a connection. So when you're researching Charlotte, uh, one thing that you notice is that she's often described as very privileged, wealthy, and educated. And while she certainly is privileged compared to those that were enslaved, 
she isn't when she's compared to her white classmates. I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, And as far as money goes, by the time that Charlotte was a teenager, a lot of that foreign money has been spread out and dried up. There was a Mm -hmm. lot of kids, right? There's a lot of kids. There's a lot of grandkids. They're doing a lot with that money. They're funding a newspaper, which is an expensive venture. There's, yeah. She was definitely very well educated. Uh, Charlotte's father actually decided to have her privately educated at home because he did not want her attending segregated schools in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is actually before the Civil War, Salem, Massachusetts has this like very vibrant African-American community. So at 16, he sends her to attend an integrated grammar school there. And then she stays on for essentially for university. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then the idea is that she is going to go on and become a teacher and support herself. Um, She actually had to work her way through university so she could do that. And um, I thought that was interesting. Such a familiar story, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you got to go become a teacher. Well, you know who else worked as a teacher? Who, who, who's that? Ala Alcott. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Of course. In Massachusetts, no less. So now after graduation, Charlotte became the first African-American teacher in the Salem public school system. She also worked in Philadelphia. And then most notably, she taught freed slaves in the Sea Islands during the Civil War. In 1864, she actually published Life in the Sea Islands in the Atlantic. And it is such a great read. Like we could do an entire episode on it. Oh, we should do that. That sounds great. It's really, really fascinating. I highly recommend it. You can easily access that in the Atlantic Archive. In 1872, she moves to D.C. to teach. And it's there she meets and marries the Reverend Francis Grimke. Charlotte and Francis are something of an activist power couple via their church. And then um, Francis actually goes on to co-found the NAACP, which is huge, really exciting thing to read, Um, especially because I've read a bunch of stuff that kind of implies that Charlotte didn't do enough with her activism. Mm. Um, But I don't know. She's like the first lady of this church. She's like helping her husband set up the NAACP, which is still, uh, you know, a massively important organization today. So I don't know. That kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Um, And the two like hang out with people like Frederick Douglass, Mary Church Terrell, and Anna Cooper. So these are all just important figures in African-American history and uh, the suffrage movement as well. These like, yeah, big names, like big, big things happening. Yeah. And the pair actually do have one daughter, but she dies as a baby. And then they take in um, Grimke's niece. And I believe her name is Angelina Grim- Grimke. And she becomes a poet and a big figure in the Harlem Renaissance. Do you know Angelina Grimke? Mm-mm. No. no, but I do know that uh, late in Lose My Alcott's Life, she adopted her namesake, Louisa May Nierica, who was the daughter of her late sister mate oh really yeah oh my goodness yeah the parallels that's interesting yeah (laughs) and also all of these like parallels that just aren't even in the notes but are just things that i remember about and i'm like let me fact check this (laughs) yeah she adopted her niece as well now that you have all of that information let's talk a little bit about her diaries Charlotte started her journal at 16 when she was sent away to school in Salem. And then now I have conflicting information on this. They sort of peter out 10 years later after she left Sea Islands, according to one source. And then another source says that they continue on and off throughout the rest of her life. Um, I have the Billington edition of her journals, which I purchased before I realized they were somewhat controversial. (laughs) So (laughs) there's that. Um, There's this article entitled Charlotte Fortin's Civil War Journals and the Quest for Genius, Beauty and Deathless Fame by Professor Lisa A. Long. 
and it takes aim at Billington for his selective editing of the journals and says that it actually hindered efforts to study Fortin for many years. So yeah, so yeah, that's the information I'm working with. But well, I I mean the out I will say too that the addition of Alcott's letters and journals that I always reference and have for this episode is the one that's on Project Gutenberg and it was published in 1898. So like, oh wow, who knows? <laughs> Yeah. And like, yeah. usually I'm just going, like going by the letters and it's mm-hmm. just difficult because sometimes I'm like, oh, there's not many here for this year. But it's like, maybe there just weren't that many known about or like maybe there's newer ones. Right. But then I can access this one and accessibility is such like, it's such a, a problem when you're dealing with yeah, this kind of material. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought this quote from the article was um, interesting. So she says, in particular, Billington's seminal characterization of her as a passive observer of the real war, untouched by the people and events around her, is like sort of the problematic situation. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, the Schomburg Library of 19th century Black women writers published Fortin's journals in their entirety in 1988, yet they have remained relatively obscure overshadowed perhaps by the common misconception that Fortin was economically privileged and somehow then unrepresentative of African-American women of the period. But she doesn't have to, sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, she doesn't have to represent all African-American women of the period. And this Mm -hmm. is like such a harmful thing. And the thing that, and it always comes up when we talk about colorblind casting, when people are like, but people of color wouldn't have had that lifestyle or they wouldn't. Right. And it's like, not everyone has to be poor. Not everyone has to be enslaved to be in a period yeah. drama. And one of the problems is because when people fall out of the common experience, mm-hmm. they're like erased from it. Like for being yeah. too. I-, I have to say when I was doing this Fortin research, that was the first time that I had ever heard that Salem had this like very vibrant, free African-American community before the Civil War. Really? And I was like, oh, it's because that history. I mean, you know, I'm sure people in New England know about it, but, you know, like it's because histories like this are erased, like you said, mm-hmm. like because they're like, oh, this doesn't really represent people. So we can just do away with that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Long goes on to say that one could argue that Charlotte's diaries have been overshadowed by slave narratives like Harriet Jacobs' Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, and that there is this idea that Fortin has more in common with white intellectuals than enslaved people of her time. And I thought that was really interesting, I have to say, because um, that's something that I get mm-hmm. just as a light-skinned black woman where I think that there's a lot of people that say oh your experience more aligns with this than that and that's a white person putting a judgment on a black person's <laughs> experience yeah. um, so I have to wonder too if people are like oh we don't need to study Fortin because we already know what all these white people did and thought during this time and we're just going to lump her in with them but you know there is this thing called racism and it is definitely not erased by money or, you know, yeah. privilege. I mean, just ask Jay-Z or Beyonce. They write whole albums about it. They Listen do. To, they do. <laughs> Listen to 444. <laughs> We're going to get to some journal entries. And I selected the following because I found them so relatable in 2020. And these are, you know, from the Billington edition, that edition begins with Charlotte's uh, thoughts on a runaway slave named Burns, who is on trial for running away. (laughs) And all of Boston and the surrounding areas are just waiting to hear about his fate. Everyone's talking about it. It's in the newspapers. Like, you know, people are trying to show their support of him. It's all anyone can, you know, can talk about. Unfortunately, he is sent back into bondage into the South, and then everyone just sort of moves on with their lives. Mm-hmm. But this has really, really deeply affected a teenage Charlotte. And Hannah, because I feel like I've been talking so much, would you like to read this one? Sure. June 4th, 1854. A beautiful day. The sky is cloudless. The sun shines warm and bright. 
and a delicious breeze fans my cheek as I sit by the window writing. How strange it is that in a world so beautiful there can be so much wickedness. On this beautiful day, while many are enjoying themselves in their happy homes, not poor Burns only, but millions beside are suffering in chains, and how many Christian ministers today will mention him or those who suffer with him? How many will speak from the pulpit against the cruel outrage on the humanity which has just been committed or against the many, even worse ones, which are committed in this country every day? Too well do we know that there are but very few and those few alone deserve to be called the ministers of Christ. I will say too that this is something that we'll talk about later in relation to Alcott's diaries and especially like the Burns case and... Mm. Um, there was like a lot happening in well in America but in Massachusetts like uh, yeah. politically that both of them are writing about in their mm-hmm. journals so we will we'll come back to it um, there are so many entries too where Charlotte expresses her frustration with the church that I find very interesting um, especially with the ministers who want to remain neutral on slavery. Mm-hmm. This is something that really, really bothers her. People that are not taking a position, godly people, quote unquote, that are not taking a position. And um, also friends of hers or acquaintances that say to her that they are, you know, privately with the cause, but they just feel that the abolitionists, you know, don't use the right language or the right Mm -hmm. strategy. And so they don't want to like align themselves with them. And there's also quite a few entries that describe Charlotte's interactions with her white friends who just can't figure out why she's so worked up about slavery all the time. Mm -hmm. Those are very interesting to read. So here's just like a little bit of one. Um, Charlotte says, while Miss Redmond was reading, Miss Osborne came in and she said she believed that we never talked or read anything but anti-slavery and she was quite tired of it. And there are also these friends that tell her that she just needs to calm down, basically, mm-hmm. and look the other way. So you have a lot of entries that kind of go something like this. <clears throat> After school, had an hour's conversation with Miss Church about slavery and prejudice. I fully appreciate her kindness and sympathy with me. But she wishes me to cultivate a Christian spirit in thinking of my enemies. I know it's right and I will endeavor to do so, but it seems difficult. Mm. So it's a lot of like preaching forgiveness, turning the other cheek, that sort of thing. It's the exhaustion. Like, Mm -hmm. it's so like palpable. Like, I know it is right. I will, like, I know I will endeavor. It seems difficult. And it Mm -hmm. doesn't even like, it isn't even like, it is difficult. She hasn't tried it yet. Like, she's so like exhausted. Like, just even the thought of it. Mm-hmm. Like it seems difficult. Just the idea of it is making her like, this is going to be a struggle. This is going to be yeah. an endeavor. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of brings me back to some of those moments that we discussed in Woman of Color at the beginning of the season, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, she's a black woman living in a white world and she's trying to figure out how to navigate it. And also it's exhausting. Yeah. So one thing that I did bring up during our Sarah E. Farrow episode was this idea that Fortin sort of idealizes England, right? Mm-hmm. You have this place where there there is no slavery and it just seems ideal. Um, so she does mention England a lot in her diaries. And I'm just going to bring up a couple of examples. On my return home, I commenced reading Macaulay's History of England, I know that I shall like it as I do everything that relates to England. There is charm for me, even in the very name. Get a lot of this. Um, Here's another one. Oh, England, my heart yearns towards thee as a loved and loving friend. Just like a lot of that. A lot of like imaginary friends. Yeah, I'm afraid. A lot of like, I want to get on a boat right now and go to England. I just I can't be here anymore. So. Very sad. Another thing that I uh, started highlighting as I was reading through her journals um, was all the books that she was reading. She was reading a ton of books. 
She, at the very beginning, mentions uh, reading Hard Times, which is a new story by Dickens for her Ooh, in that moment. Oh, the press. Mm-hmm. Fresh Dickens. Doing that serialized Dickens. Um, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, on many occasions, loves oh. EBB. And especially um, some of those anti-slavery poems by oh, EBB. Cool. So those come up. But then also the, the love poems as well. Just all. Just all just of it. Whatever she can get her hands on. Mm-hmm. Into it. Ida May, which I had never heard of. Uh, this is an anti-slavery novel by Mary Hayden Green Pike. It's a lot of last names there. And um, I went looking for it, and there's actually a Broadview edition. So, Oh, is there? Yeah, I'm going to check that one out, we actually. We um, Press. I know. Charlotte enjoyed it, but... She did think that Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin was better. So controversial. <laughs> yeah. She's like, she appreciates what Ida May is doing, but she's like, mm-hmm. eh, it didn't grip me as much as Uncle Tom's Cabin. So that's her review. Um, also, she does attend lectures given by Harriet's brother, Henry Ward Beecher, as well as some lectures that were given by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And do you know Emerson? Mm-mm. <laughs> no. He's a big American, like poet, essayist, one of the important dudes. Um, Sorry. But he Sorry, America. is pals with Louisa May Alcott. So that's why that's uh... interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Phyllis Wheatley also comes up. So on Friday, July 28th, I believe this is 1854, she says, This evening, read poems of Phyllis Wheatley, an African slave who lived in Boston at the time of the revolution. She was a wonderfully gifted woman, and many of her poems are very beautiful. Her character and genius afford a striking proof of the falseness of the assertion made by some that hers is an inferior race, which just kind of brought me back to our Phyllis Wheatley episode. Maybe my favorite entry is um, the one that's all about Nathaniel Hawthorne, who is the author of Scarlet Letter. And it sounds like maybe Charlotte was doing a literary home tour. Road trip diary. It's really weird because she doesn't give us like enough information. (laughs) I'm so annoyed by it. But on July 10th, 1854, Charlotte writes, I have seen today a portrait of Hawthorne, one of the finest that has ever been taken of him. He has a splendid head. And she like really keeps describing it. Like she keeps going on with this the description. <laughs> yeah, just all of it. <laughs> his brow, his eyes, like she oh keeps going God. on and on. And then she goes on to say that Hawthorne's sister, who is very pleasant, but has an eerie and spectral look, shows her another portrait and then like shows her around the house. And I'm like, what house? What house is it? I was just screaming at the diary. What house? <laughs> because in 1852, Hawthorne bought Hillside from the Alcotts, and then he later renames it The Wayside. So I was just screaming, Charlotte, are you in Louisa's childhood home? Oh, my gosh. Imagine if she was. Um, I mean, I know, right? It's crazy. Um, I think it's probably more likely that she was in Hawthorne's childhood home. Mm-hmm. But I just I just want to imagine that she we was just actually at the, at the wayside. We don't know. I don't know. Just looking at all this stuff. Where was she? So while Fulton was describing Hawthorne's head, mm-hmm. uh, Alcott was doing other stuff. There's no 1854 reference to Hawthorne's head in her journals. I did go through them looking at that year because I was trying to figure out like, if there's any overlap between them or if there were like, because mm-hmm. I had this like romantic idea in my head that I was going to have like, they attended like the same event or like there would be all of these things that come up. But you just kind of don't really get that when you read Louise May Alcott's journals. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mentioned it before. Uh, I think it's actually just one of my favorite books ever. Uh, it's Louise May Alcott, Her Life and Letters and Journals. It's edited by Edna D. Cheney. Like I said, it was published in 1898 and it includes like biography as well as like the extracts. And yeah, it's like, it's letters, it's the diaries. And I just feel like I found so much 
of Alcott in there. Like I would love mm-hmm. to own a physical copy because I just go on Project Gutenberg. But I also mm-hmm. love to read books online because you can control F and just find like interesting yeah, yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Um, so Shaney says that Miss Alcott revised her journals at different times during her later life striking out what was too personal for other eyes than her own and destroying a great deal which would doubtless have proved very interesting. The small number of letters given will undoubtedly be a disappointment. Miss Alcott wished to have most of her letters destroyed and her sister respected her wishes. She was not a voluminous correspondent, she did not encourage many intimacies and she seldom wrote letters except to her family unless in reference to some purpose she had strongly at heart. Writing was her constant occupation and she was not tempted to indulge in it as a recreation. Her letters are brief and strictly to the point but always characteristic in feeling and and expression, and even at the risk of the repetition repetition of matter contained in her journals or her books, I shall give copious extracts from such as have come into my hands. I wanted to like kind of give a background as to like maybe why Alcott's journal is sparse or like why her letters are sparse because Mm -hmm. it's something that comes up a lot I think with women writers is like this sense of privacy and when we're reading Mm -hmm. people's diaries when we're reading Fortin's diaries and Alcott's diaries um it is worth remembering that they're like private documents that they didn't write to be published and I find a lot of Alcott in them but she didn't want me to find her. One thing that's also very interesting that we're dealing with here too is that Charlotte Fortin never expected to be famous or Mm -hmm that anyone would be looking through these diaries. So she, these are unedited. Well, except for Billington's edits, right? Like she's just, you know, she never edited these. But Alcott in her lifetime was famous. And so you can see an eye towards curating the legacy there as well. Yeah. And we know that Gaskell asked people to burn mm-hmm. her letters. We know Austin did the same, you know. We know that mm-hmm. Charlotte was controlling of the legacy of her sisters. Right. Just yeah, I just always I always think it's interesting. I feel like we say it too often on the show for it to be interesting for our listeners, but I always find it interesting when it's talked about. Sorry. <laughs> I also really love this line. Writing was her constant occupation and she was not tempted to indulge in it as a recreation. Yeah. I, I feel just that. like Yeah, that's great. In 1854, Louisa May Alcott was uh living and working in Boston, which mm-hmm. is in Massachusetts. True story. She was 21. And Charlotte was traveling into Boston constantly in 1854. So very cool. She wasn't a consistent diarist. She uh, didn't write on a daily basis. And she often just like summarizes several months at a time. Mm -hmm. Although she consistently wrote throughout her life. So she consistently kept a diary, but her diary entries are not consistent. I'm right there with her. That's how I I roll. Yeah, And so this does mean that there are some years where there isn't very much. And unfortunately, Lauren, 1854, one of those years. Of course. Uh, The thing that I do love about the extracts is that though they're scarce, they do show a young Alcott living and working in the city, thinking about writing, doing her best to make a name for herself. And she is just obsessed with money. Mm -hmm. Completely. Makes sense. Makes sense. So this is the diary entry for 1854 that we have. Lauren, do you want to read it? 1854, Pinkney Street. (laughs) I have neglected my journal for months, so must write up. School for me month after month. Mother busy with borders and sewing. Father doing as well as a philosopher can in a money-loving world. Anna at Syracuse. I earned a good deal by sewing in the evening when my day's work was done. In February, father came home, paid his way, but no more. A dramatic scene when he arrived in the night. We were waked by hearing the bell. Mother flew down crying, my husband. We rushed after, this. that feels very little women, mm-hmm. by the way. Just wait. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> we rushed after and five white figures embraced the half-frozen wanderer who came in hungry, tired, cold and disappointed, but smiling bravely as a serene and as serene as ever. 
We fed and warmed and brooded over him, longing to ask if he had made any money. But no one did until little May said, after he had told all the pleasant things, well, did people pay you? Then, with a queer look, he opened his pocketbook and showed one dollar, saying with a smile that made our eyes fill, only that. My overcoat was stolen and I had to buy a shawl. Many promises were not kept and traveling is costly, but I have opened the way and another year shall do better. I mean, I see why she's obsessed with money. Mm -hmm. I shall never forget how beautifully mother answered him, though the dear hopeful soul had built much on his success. But with a beaming face, she kissed him saying, I call that doing very well since you are safely home, dear. We don't ask anything more. Anna and I choked down our tears and took a little lesson in real love, which we never forgot, nor the look that the tired man and the tender woman gave one another. It was half tragic and comic, for father was was very dirty and sleepy and mother in a big nightcap and a funny old jacket. Let's see. Yeah, read that, that bit in the brackets. Okay. But not I the began, Okay. I began to see the strong contrasts and the fun and follies in everyday life about this time. And that's LMA. So I think that that is an aside. That formatting mm-hmm. shows an aside. And it comes up as um, in like later entries and like letters and stuff. She'll And when she does it, she always writes her name next to it. She'll just put like LMA. Was she looking at it like as inspiration for writing? Like, okay, this is this time when I... When well, I started to see the fun and follies in everyday life. And like, I almost wonder if she's like looking over this, like, hmm, okay, maybe I will come back to this for little yeah, women think, or something like that. I think that. so. Because um, she's like actively, she doesn't, it's not like at the end of her life where she just sits down and is like, now it's time to destroy it. She's like, it's mm-hmm. a process. Like her diary keeping is an ongoing process where she's like censoring herself or annotating or providing more information where she mm-hmm. thinks it's necessary. Um, that like the last line of the entry is Han- uh, Anna came home in March, kept our school all, st- kept our school all summer. I got flower fables ready to print. I just think it's like it's so interesting, and like I was actually get I got a bit emotional while you were reading it. I'm sorry to admit, I was like getting ready really to have a little entry. It's like she's such a storyteller. Mm-hmm. It explains so much she was too poor to really be thinking about anything other than working and surviving Mm -hmm. like your dad coming home after however long and he just has a dollar and the mum just being like you've done well she doesn't like shout at him she doesn't lay into him and then Alcott saying like we took a lesson we took a little lesson in real love and what I think is really interesting is that when we did the eight cousins read along, we were like, this is so saccharine. Mm-hmm. But actually, I just, I think they were so poor. I think they like they had yeah. to be kind because they didn't have a lot else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that in this entry. Yeah, it just makes me, it just makes me really sad reading it. <laughs> it just, it's so beautiful. So while living in Boston, Alcott worked as a teacher. She worked as a seamstress and she worked as a writer. And if you're interested in those experiences as a working woman, then we would half recommend her novel work. Mm-hmm. And I say half recommend because we weren't crazy about it. And her essay, How I Went Into Service, which is great. Which we did love, yeah. Yes. Um. So I do want to include some of her letters just because we only have that one diary entry. Mm-hmm. And again, you're going to see some like classic Alcott action in here. So um, this is a letter to her sister, Anna, who we know from the journal, living in Syracuse. Dearest Nan, I was so glad to hear from you and hear that all were well. I am grubbing away as usual, trying to get enough money to buy mother a nice warm shawl. I have $11, all my own earnings, five for a story and four for the pile of sewing I did for the ladies of Dr. Gray Society to give him as a present. I cut a bit out because I didn't think it was interesting. Mm -hmm. She goes on to say, I got a crimson ribbon for a bonnet for May and I took my straw and fixed it nicely with some little duds I had. Her old one has haunted me all winter and I wanted her to look neat. 
She is so graceful and pretty and loves beauty so much it is hard for her to be poor and wear other people's ugly things. You and I have learned not to mind much, but when I think of her, I long to dash out and buy the finest hat the limited sum of $10 can procure. She says so sweetly in one of her letters, it is hard sometimes to see other people have so many nice things and I so few, but I try not to be envious, but contented with my poor clothes and cheerful about it. Ooh. If that isn't Little Women, I don't know what is. That could be Amy or Meg, couldn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. She goes on to say, To my father I shall send new neckties and some paper, then he will be happy and can keep on with the beloved diaries though the heavens fall. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right? I really... (laughs) Yeah. Don't laugh at my plans. I'll carry them out if I go to service to do it. And I like Mm -hmm. that. Because how I went into service... Yeah, she did it. ...include the movie title... Um, (laughs) She also talks about her writing and the pieces that she is getting published and the rate that she is earning. Mm -hmm. She says, my doings are not much this week. I sent a little tale to the Gazette and Clap asked HW if $5 would be enough. Cousin H said yes and gave it to me with kind words and a nice parcel of paper saying in his funny way, now Lou, the door is open, go in and win. So I shall try to do it. And she finishes her letter saying... I'm writing another story for Clap. I want more fives and mean to have them too. All right. Going Mate, for yes. it. <laughs> I want more fives. Yeah. And she bloody gets them. Yeah, she does. So by December, well, okay, that's skipping too far ahead. But by December 1854, she does earn more fives because she sells a publish. So she publishes a collection of stories that she'd originally written for a friend's daughter very Beatrix Potter. Mm-hmm. The book is called Flower Fables. It's her first book and she earns $32 in one go. Uh, Shaney puts it in that book, the Alcott book, that the letters one that I can't mm. remember the title. <laughs> she says, it gave her the great satisfaction of having earned it by work that she loved and which she could do well. Now the yeah. last entry under 1854 in, oh, I, I couldn't say it, but it was right in the notes. Um, it's a really touching letter written by Alcott um, on Christmas Day, and she gave it to her mum along with a copy of Flower Fables. So this is like she's gifting her mum her first published book on Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. And, oh, look, they're back in Pinkney Street. Go on, Lauren. Yeah, back in Boston. Dear Mother, into your Christmas stocking I have put my firstborn knowing that you will accept it with all its faults, for grandmothers are always kind, and look upon it merely as an earnest of what I may yet do. For with so much to cheer me on, I hope to pass in time from fairies and fables to men and realities. Whatever beauty or poetry is to be found in my little book is owing to your interest in an encouragement of all of my efforts from the first to the last. And if ever I do anything to be proud of, my great happiness will be that I can thank you for that, as I may do for all the good there is in me. And I shall be content to write if it gives you pleasure. Joe fussing about, my lamp is going out. To dear mother, with many kind wishes for a happy new year and a merry Christmas. I am ever your loving daughter. Is it Louie? Does she call herself Louie? Must do. Louis. Yeah. Because she writes, she also signs off as Lou as well. Lou. Like, sometimes she Lou. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh, is she Louie and sometimes Lou? That's cute. I really liked the grandmothers are always kind bit. But I think the thing mm-hmm. that really strikes me about that letter is um, when she says, like, look upon it merely as an earnest of what I may yet do. Mm-hmm. And then saying, like, I hope to pass in time from fairies and fables to men and realities. Yeah. Like she wants to start writing about the world. She wants to start reacting to stuff around her, but she hasn't like quite transitioned to it yet. Mm-hmm. And that really resonated with me because I know that like, and I'm sure a lot of people will feel like it. When I was a child and like the YA book market these days is just like wild, right? And yeah. there are just books about everything. And you grow up reading YA books thinking like I want to write this 
because mm-hmm. that's what you're like exposed to. And so for a really long time, I was like, I want to be a YA author. Mm-hmm. And I think, and then one day I was like, oh, I, I want to write nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Or like, I'm interested in nonfiction. And I like, really kind of moved away from it. And so, yeah, Alcott in like her early 20s living in Boston being like, you know what? That was great. But like, there's other stuff I can be doing. And like, just pivoting, yeah. I, think I think is so interesting. That's one of the reasons why I relate to Alcott the most out of all of the authors that we cover. I mean, we know, obviously, she's sort of hit or miss, but I mm-hmm. feel like we can see her figuring out her career, like, as you go through her work. You're like, okay, like, she's just, she's trying it on. And she's she's trying it on because she needs the money, too, by the way. Like, yeah, she's like, sensation writing? Let's she give it a shot. Fives. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, $32 isn't quit your day job money. She wasn't able to hang up her thimble. She continues sewing and teaching by day, sometimes by night. And she just fits in writing where she could. Hashtag wretched bondage. Um, And the thing that's really great, though, is like it's the graft or the lack of immediate success. It doesn't like turn her off. And like Mm -hmm. you're saying, she, you know, she's trying new things. She's doing this and that. But her ideas are still there and the talent is still there. And it's just like bubbling away below the surface until it's her time. And again, with Austin, when you have that 10 years where she's not writing, it's not she's thinking she's like Mm -hmm. getting better. She's getting stronger so that when she revisits first impressions and it becomes Pride and Prejudice, it's a better book because of that because of that time, you know. Mm -hmm. So like just because you're not actively writing doesn't mean you're not becoming a better writer, I think is is that lesson. So yeah, I had this idea that we were going to like compare uh, Fulton and Alcott and we were going to have like this crossover and like they'd be on the same street. It would be like the opening sequence from You've Got Mail. Mm-hmm. That would be Alcott's great. Alcott's Tom Hanks, <laughs> Charlotte Fulton's <laughs> Meg Ryan, crossing paths, never knowing. But it doesn't happen. Um, right. And now I will say... I'm not here to pass judgment on anyone is on anyone's wokeness mm-hmm. at all. But it is interesting to me that as a white woman, Alcott's diaries and letters at this time are about money, they're about work, they're about her family, they're about her books, and they are about her lived experiences. And this is Alcott who is like a staunch abolitionist or like is known for being a staunch abolitionist and I think even though that's like her reputation and we don't know what she's doing with her time or what conversation she's having with people, we can't like look at her WhatsApp. We can't like look at what she's been posting on Instagram. Uh, Race is something that is picked up and considered either outside of her diary or not at all. And this is something that becomes apparent when you compare and contrast, you know, these diaries. You have Charlotte Fortin, who's life is dominated by racial injustice and she is writing about this almost every day and then you have Alcott who is um dipping in and out like what do we have here now three years earlier in 1851 she described attending a meeting on the topic of slavery and specifically about the fate of an enslaved man Thomas Sims who had fled from Georgia to Boston And the case was incredibly public and absolutely would have been on Alcott's radar and absolutely would have been on Fulton's radar as well. So this is Alcott's diary entry from 1851. She says, We went to a meeting and heard splendid speaking from Phillips, Channing and others. People were very much excited and cheered Shadrach and Liberty, groaned for Webster and slavery and made great noise. I felt ready to do anything, fight or work, hoot or cry, and laid plans to free Sims. I shall be horribly ashamed of my country if this thing happens and the slave is taken back. And then we have one of her little notes and it just says, he was, and then her initials. Oh gosh. The same as Burns then. Mm-hmm. So, just the same. I looked this up. So I looked up to see if Charlotte Fortson mentioned Sims in her mm-hmm. journals. Um, she doesn't. <laughs> she's she's quite young in 51. She, yeah, so, she's like yeah. 13. Mm-hmm. But uh, she does allude to his arrest in 1855. 
So okay. I was trying to figure it out if they'd uh, both written about him. And I came across Charlotte Fortin coming of age as a radical teenage abolish- abolitionist, 1854 to 1856, which is a dissertation by Kristen Hilaire Glasgow. And I want to read out this section from it, but you can get it online. And people's dissertations are great. Yeah. <laughs> Mine is we terrible. use them all the time. <laughs> My God, Kristen. <laughs> Congrats. <laughs> also, it was written last year. So she says, On Thursday, May 25th, Charlotte penned, did not intend to write this evening, but have just heard... but have just heard of something that is worth recording. She expressed her fear and outrage over Burns having been jailed and wrote about the incident must ever rouse in the mind of every true friend of liberty and humanity feelings of the deepest indignation and sorrow. Uh, Kristen says, It was a dark day for abolitionists in Boston and Salem, and the teenager's writing provides a vivid account of the impact it had on the city as as well as its people. She made a point to write that Burns was not the first fugitive to be put in jail, adding... Another fugitive from bondage has been arrested like a criminal in the streets of her capital. And this indicates that Charlotte was keenly aware of the brief history and havoc of the 1850 fugitive slave law in Boston. And even though Charlotte did not mention the other fugitive by name, she was more than likely referring to Thomas Sims. I think the thing that's interesting about the two like looking at these two diaries and looking at these two authors is just that they're keeping these journals that do intersect Mm -hmm. in terms of like the places that they're writing about but also that we have Alcott and she was an abolitionist and so then politically there's the intersect not that it comes Mm -hmm. up very often because Alcott's writing about other stuff if she's writing at all because she's Mm -hmm. not writing consistently and I just it really reminded me of Anne Lister and Elizabeth Wadsworth, who were living and writing in such close proximity in Yorkshire. Yeah. Um, and if that is something that you're interested in, then you can check out our Shibden Hall and Holdsworth House episode, which is season 4.3, episode 6. Correct. But yeah, and it just, both of them, both of their journal entries, like Alcott's entry about going to the rally... I really related to, you know, and like the protests mm-hmm. from earlier this year that have been happening. And then Fortson's diary and knowing that you like relate to that and that like my other friends relate to that. We've spoken about it. It She's not, she's saying stuff that just sounds so familiar. Yeah. Yeah. So it's fascinating to compare and contrast their mindsets on race relations And I think that's why um, this idea that like, you know, we should lump Charlotte Fortin in with white intellectuals is so wrong because Mm -hmm. you can see when you compare and contrast these journal entries that there are differences. I mean, Louisa May Alcott's entry on that um, anti-slavery meeting is not totally dissimilar to something that you'd read in Fortin's diaries she goes to anti-slavery meetings a lot so much Mm -hmm. so that her white friends are like don't you do anything else um but and she's always very impressed with the speakers but she's also very reserved because you can tell she's very nervous Mm -hmm. at how things are being received she often um talks about how many people are there and just and a lot of times she's really disappointed that there's not more people there or that people don't seem enthusiastic enough. She's really talking about everyone else because I think she's just like afraid to get her hopes up, honestly, Mm -hmm. is the thing. Whereas you have Louisa May Alcott sort of on this opposite spectrum. She's like all fired up and she's ready to go. It's funny, like when we initially chose to compare these two, I didn't think that there would be that much there, honestly. I was like, well, they're kind of in the same area around the same time. And we weren't even going to so do much. Alcott. You were going to no. do Charlotte Fulton. I was going to do like the letters of Beatrix Potter. Yeah. And then we were like, it's oh, let's just do accidental. Them. It's completely accidental that this happened. And what's funny is like there's so much that we didn't cover because um, not only like we could like take an angle too with these two about their um, their families. So these very mm-hmm. interesting families who were entrenched in education and activism 
Um, They both have their careers interrupted by the Civil War and that totally changes their lives and write forever. About it. And they write about it both for the Atlantic. I think, yeah, actually both for the Atlantic. <laughs> um, they also both had chronic health issues as well. I just feel like um, you're probably going to hate me for saying this, but I would love if we did a dual bio on these two. <laughs> as if we don't have enough uh. on our plates, but honestly, we should do yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> we should. Someone should. And that someone should be us. <laughs> And that is it for this week and almost it for our season on lost books, unpublished work and marginalized voices. Next week is our last episode and we will be talking about the author Pauline Hopkins. But before we let you go, we have some special announcements. Hannah, would you like to tell people about what's going on with Bonnets at Dawn on the internets? Uh, Yeah, we just like... <laughs> Uh, yeah, we just like, yeah. uh, I don't know what to say. I can only talk if there's a script in front of me. You can say We Abby. made a proper web shop. Yeah, we it's did. It's very exciting. And you can get, uh, you can get mugs, which mm-hmm. are very exciting. And, uh, stickers, which we both are obsessed with. Uh, t-shirts. Um, we have a special product, new author, who we haven't had on a t-shirt before to see in the new web store. And I just want to say just that when you purchase a t-shirt from Bonnets at Dawn, you make the show possible. True story. Because <laughs> we don't have ads, we don't have a Patreon. Um, and when we can travel, which we have not done this year and may not mm-hmm. do next year, but I'm hoping we can, it's all out of our own pocket. Yeah. And so you're funding some of, doesn't cover all of it, but mm-hmm. some of the road trip diaries, uh, hosting fees, and just, I don't know, maybe maybe think of Bonnets at Dawn when you're doing your Christmas shopping this year. And oh, yeah. we will post all of those links on the internet. Hannah, do you want to tell us? Oh, that's me. Yeah, <laughs> Hannah, tell us. Where can people see the new team t-shirt and figure out who that author is? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com and you can join our Facebook discussion group by searching for Bonnets at Dawn. <laughs>